Usually when choosing a subject for a Dhamma talk, I look into my own heart to see what I need to pay attention to. And also, how can I bring the ancient teachings of the Buddha alive through my own experience? And how can I share that so that they can be um, translated into our own lives? and so that they have meaning for us living here in this 20th century. So that's why I chose the subjects of trust and courage. Um, It's an area which I've been working on a long time, so it didn't, uh, it wasn't so difficult to find that. In major transitions in our lives, it brings a need for the recognition and the cultivation of trust and courage. It's such a beautiful part of our blossoming, in a way, but it comes with also very difficult parts. A lot of suffering comes with transition. Sometimes we feel the beautiful part of this blossoming in a new way. We feel like a bud you know, just beginning to open. And then sometimes there are moments for myself when I feel this doubt. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes it's just an old niggling doubt. But nevertheless, I feel it. And it's a doubt about my ability to really receive the moment, to know how to handle the practice, about going on for that hour or that day. It usually has to do with that kind of doubt for me. It's never usually doubt in the Dhamma or in the teachings of the Buddha or in my teachers, but rather in my own ability to carry out the practice. Often I ask myself, when I feel this budding or this opening, will I be able to open in a new way? Can I open in a new way? Faith in myself or my ability to open in a new way seems to happen very slowly for me. It's never happened in a, in a big, big way. It's a gradual opening. We can liken it as I have to a a budding flower, or sometimes it comes in thin slivers of light, of understanding, like a new moon just beginning to open into its full brightness. When I was younger, um, you know, many years ago, (laughs) um, I remember having this brazen courage to to venture into things, to do things. I don't have that brazen courage or that boldness now that I used to. It's a boldness in those days, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, that actually came from not knowing (laughs) and from a kind of innocence. Um, There's a funny way that it's put in Spanish, which is part of my heritage that it comes from 
uh, courage of stupidity. <laughs> um, my mother used to tell me, and others used to tell me, that I was able to do what I needed to do because I was saved by my own ignorance. And just being able to, many years ago, having to leave the, the Philippines, my birth country, my motherland, with three children, very small, as a single parent, and um, not knowing how I was going to manage, but knowing that I had to, to leave that place because of many different conditions. One of them being that the country was then under martial law, and the family that I was uh, married into, that I was leaving because of a lot of difficulties, um, was in the opposition party to the then President Marcos, and anyone in that family couldn't leave. And so I had to ask the American Embassy to help me, and it, it took a long time to secretly be able to leave the country, to secretly get the permission and then finally leave the country. The brazen boldness that I had at that time is not effective now for me. It's not appropriate. What's helpful to me now to really touch into is a kind of gentle balance that I need in opening to new understandings that I find when my heart opens. It, it more needs a kind of gentleness rather than a brazen kind of energy. So it's this gentle balance of trust and courage that is needed. So I looked into the teachings to see where could I fit this trust and courage into, you know, like the, the eight of this, the four of that. The, and <laughs> Steve pointed out to me that I could fit these very well into that um, teaching of the five spiritual faculties, or the five powers. And these are the powers that oversee our spiritual development. They are the vehicle for us on this path to liberation. So I'd like to put some light on the first two of those five. So the first spiritual power is confidence, or faith which can also be described as trust. And the second is energy, which can be translated into courage. It takes energy or courage to bring that faith forth. And so that's why these two are one after another, I believe. So just for your general information, the other three of the five spiritual powers are mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So those make up the five. Confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. As I was looking into more ways to present this to you, I came across in the Sutta Nipata one of the suttas called the Alavaka Sutta. And in that story, or in that teaching, a demon uh, came forth and began to threaten the Buddha 
and then put forth some questions to the Buddha for the Buddha to answer. One of the questions was, what is the best wealth in the world? And the Buddha answered, confidence is the best wealth. One crosses the flood of the cycles of suffering by confidence. And so I just wanted to take a look at all of that, confidence, faith, trust, what it means to us, and how its meaning can get refined over the years of our practice. We've all heard of that term, a leap of faith. And to me, that, in retrospect, seemed associated with leaping but not looking, you know, a kind of blind faith with our eyes closed. And when we're younger, we kind of have the energy and time to do that. You know, we think, oh, this is great. We can venture into new terrain. And, you know, we've got the time and energy to clean up our mess and then to, you know, find a better way to do it the next time. But as we get older, energy and time become very precious commodities that we can't waste. And besides, we've got our eyes open now from many experiences that have brought us wisdom. So we want to do it a different way this time. As we age, we begin to slow down. That's one of the benefits of aging that I've seen. (laughs) And we really learn to savor the journey, to really let ourselves um, know the time, the hour, the moment more deeply. Because this is where, this time of our lives is where a depth of understanding comes, where we're not willing anymore to glean over you know, to go over quickly, to be in a rush, where we're really willing to let ourselves sink more into the moment's experience and to know what wisdom can come from that. So as we walk our path, we develop uh, a more, in an organic way, a very deep trust and faith and give ourselves permission to take our path one step at a time, one moment at a time, instead of leaps and bounds. So what nourishes faith, and what sabotages it? And this is where trust comes in. When I looked into the Visuddhimagga, which is uh, the path of purification, a... um, a commentary written actually about 500 years after the Buddha's death by a great monk called Buddha Gosha. He described um, faith as having the characteristic of trusting, of trusting. Traditionally, I learned uh, from Upandita in the Buddhist tradition that the things that are worthy of our faith the areas that are worthy of our faith and trust are the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. That's traditionally in the Buddhist teachings. But more practically, and in my own experience, I've seen that what I can really have faith in the most 
is the present moment because that is the place for me of the most truth when mindfulness is there. And when I look at those places that traditionally the Buddha said we can place our faith in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, when we, um, what the Buddha meant by placing faith in the Buddha is our own potential for awakening. Um, Buddha means the awakened one. And so when we have faith in the Buddha, it's really in our own potential for awakening. And when we have faith in the Dhamma, what most practically is the Dhamma? The Dhamma is this moment, this moment's truth. And when we can penetrate the moment deeply, it's where we find the wisdom that really takes us to the other shore of the end of suffering. So the Dhamma is this moment, this present moment. And this is where we can place our faith, we can place our trust. And it's what this practice is all about, practicing how to really be in this present moment. So how do we do that? Considering that this journey is taking us through inner terrain, really, through new, a lot of new and unknown terrain, which in some ways in many traditions is referred to as the sacred, very sacred terrain. One of the things... um, that I found about faith is that it said that the soil in which understanding grows is faith. And so this sacred terrain is the soil in which faith can grow. So considering that this journey, this path, this inner terrain is sacred so that it'll allow us to have that perspective when we open to the unknown that this is really a sacred place. It might seem fearful at first, but if we can begin with that perspective, it helps. Another way that can help is to drop any expectations of how we think it should be. One of the um, popular gurus of our time is Swami Satchitananda, and I've been around him now and then, when he comes to visit on Maui, one of his uh, favorite vacation places, where a lot of us take benefit of his light being around him. And he says lots of times, no appointment, no disappointment. So (laughs) when we don't have any expectation, there's nothing to be disappointed by. It can be a way where every moment can be new and fresh to us. So we have to really be willing to be surprised by the moment. Recently I was reading in an article or a a, um, cluster of articles that were passed around IMS about ways of of being in organizations and communities of, uh, you know, where um, people are gathered for a common cause. This was said by 
a woman who wrote the book Leadership and the New Science. Her name is Meg Wheatley. She said, surprise is the only route to discovery. And it's so true. If we want to discover who we really are or who we're really not, um, we have to really be willing to be surprised, to let it be new, to go into the unknown, and to trust that this is the way, this is the path towards that discovery. The flip side of trusting is blaming, which doesn't nourish the faith that we need. When blaming is there, there's a lot of energy towards others, towards what others did wrong, and there's very little energy left over to put into what we need as confidence for ourselves. And this is oftentimes what we do in our practice. Um, how this happened for me just on this last retreat is uh, as I was, it, it comes a lot when I'm walking. Um, and when I was walking once, not once, but probably 156 times, <laughs> the, this old story came up that actually happened three or four years ago where um, I was blamed for something and it seemed terribly unfair. And the story comes back every once in a while to plague me. And this time it really came back with a vengeance over the days of my practice here. And <laughs> being blamed for something that I felt I wasn't um, uh, worthy of being blamed for, needed to be blamed for, I just took a lot of energy in blaming back, in not being given a chance to explain. And over and over again, this was draining me. Just over and over again, the energy was draining me. And when I stopped to see at one point how much energy I had taken to blame back and how much energy was lost in trusting myself, how could I trust myself just knowing what was happening in the present moment, maybe really feeling deeply what that blame felt like, blaming another, feeling blamed, really being present with just that moment instead of blowing it up and being in the whole big atomic bomb concept of it. All of a sudden, I saw that this story coming over and over again was really giving me another chance. I, in a way, you know, I, as I went through that story day after day after day, um, I felt so frustrated, you know, I felt like I was totally a jerk by letting myself go over and over it again, by blaming myself for, you know, believing the story and not letting myself be in the present moment over and over and over again. And I, then I began to blame the story. I began to blame the thinking, you know, I just, just to get out of it, out of being in the present moment, I guess. So it went from one thing or another, as blame usually does. And 
as I went over and over the story and started blaming the thinking process, all of a sudden I came to this moment where I just felt totally grateful to that repetitive story. It turned in a moment and I thought, it's giving me another chance. The repetition of this story is allowing me to have another chance to see it in a different way. Because previous to that moment, I'd not been able to see it in a different way. I had not been able to go more deeply into the wisdom of that moment, of seeing that moment. That I could let myself, allow myself, see the deeper understanding of that moment of the impermanent nature of it, of the selfless quality of it, where it went beyond the other and me, where it went beyond she abused me, he abused me, or blamed me, that I felt wronged, and then doing the same towards that person or those persons, where it could go totally beyond that, and I could feel and experience the deep interconnectedness where there was no other and there was no me. Where I could really sink into that moment, where I could open into that darkness in a totally different way than I did before. I've recently been inspired by the writings of um, Rilke and I wanted to read something to you from there that speaks to this. So I came to see by this repetition and this all of a sudden shift in seeing that in a totally different way and being thankful for that opportunity to have another chance and to open to the darkness differently. I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. So I am sometimes like a tree, trestling over a gravesite and making real the dream of the one its living roots embrace, a dream once lost among sorrows and songs. And then in another part, he writes, I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. I want to stay clear in your sight. I would describe myself like a landscape I've studied at length in detail, like a word I'm coming to understand more deeply like my mother's face, like a ship that carries me where the waters rage. So it helps us, this confidence, open to the darkness in a totally different way. It helps us go through those raging waters um, and see things from a deeper place from a different perspective, from
from a place that can free us gives us another chance to be free instead of going over and over again with blame or feelings of unworthiness or whatever it is that keeps us from going more deeply into the wisdom that is there. It said that the function of faith is to clarify or to enter into and that investigation is the antidote to doubt which is the opposite of faith. So here when we really let ourselves sink into the present moment's experience, so this is another uh, way of um, nurturing or nourishing confidence is simply being with the present moment. Because when we are with the present moment, when mindfulness is there, that's when investigation can truly arise, which is the antidote to doubt. When we sustain our attention, when we connect and sustain our attention to whatever is happening into the present moment, when we enter into the present moment in that way, through the sustaining of our attention on the present moment, This is what overcomes doubt. It gives a kind of wisdom that lets us uh, feel energy and strength to go forth. That overcomes its opposition of doubt. One of the ways that we can do this very practically, if we haven't tried it yet, is to simply try slowing down. Sometimes... um, we're going too fast to experience more deeply the moment. Where Steve and I live on, on Maui, sometimes it's, um, it's awful to be around Polynesians and Hawaiians. You know, it, it makes you really have to learn patience, which uh, Steve's trying to learn, so he's in the right place. <laughs> um, and I'm learning the places where I'm impatient you know where when people aren't patient is where I'm mostly impatient (laughs) I better put this over here Sometimes when I say that, he takes this and he conks me on the head, so I'm putting it over here. (laughs) Where we live on on Maui, there are a lot of Polynesians, and um, it's wonderful to be around them in a way. And in a way, you know, it shows you where you're impatient. Hawaiians and Polynesians, when you're there, there's often a phrase, uh, you get Polynesian paralysis. You know, you just kind of really slow down. Where, <laughs> where sometimes when things are going fast, and even in the world of the Dharma, things can go really fast, especially when you're hooked into electronic mail. You know, <laughs> all the emails that come in, and then, you know, answering them, and keeping things going in the Dharma, keeping things alive. There's a lot of things that we have to do at home. And so when we want to slow down, 
we go to the beach to get what we call beach brains or Polynesian paralysis. And we try to walk behind as much as we can, you know, the people who live there. Because they, they just naturally go slow. And when I'm around them, they've taught me a lot. There are the kapunas of the, of the culture. Kapunas are the elders. And when you listen to them, because they've gone slow, they have a lot of wisdom. And um, in the last years, they have thankfully brought the kapunas into the elementary school system where the kids actually have to sit with them and they listen to the stories of the elders. And they just tell simple stories of their life and how being in the... Um, you know, the ways of, of the, the olden ways has helped them to see with wisdom. And so um, uh, walking behind them or being with them on the beach is wonderful to do. Sometimes, you know, when you're in a shopping center, um, this is my experience all the time, you get behind them and, uh, you know, it, it can be quite crowded. And you get behind them and all of a sudden they just decide to rest and sit down. So they just sit down wherever they are. It can be the middle of a walkway. And, and sometimes in our post office, um, where we have our post office, it's in a little town, you see them just kind of, they lay their mats out, you know, their woven mats, and they just sit there. And they, they're just there, you know. <laughs> it's really kind of wonderful. It's a teaching to see that. Because then you can really see what's coming, you know, very in a very organic way when you let the moment reveal itself from that kind of openness, that slowness to the moment. We gradually unfold like a flower in this way when that happens. We let ourselves do that. There's this um, poem or this writing that I found on a tea box recently. It's from the Findhorn Garden, and it says, Flowers unfold slowly and gently, bit by bit, in the sunshine. And a heart, too, must never be pushed or driven, but unfold in its own perfect timing to reveal its true wonder and beauty. So we ask ourselves, you know, can we really allow ourselves to do that? Not need this, have this striving, you know, like Joseph says, kind of leaning into the future or having these uh, little agendas that are subtle that begin to reveal themselves to us and as we go through practice and then we can let go of that we want to attain something. We want to gain something by this practice. Because we realize as we go along that there's, this practice has nothing to do with getting anything. Absolutely nothing to do with getting anything. It has everything to do with letting go. And so if we're trying to attain anything, that's definitely the wrong direction. Because it has everything to do with emptying, with letting go, with seeing from that place of clear water, empty vessel. 
once in retreat. Um, this is a retreat with Manindra, one of my first retreats. He was my first uh, teacher, Dharma teacher, and continues to be. And it was a time when there were incredibly new openings, and some were very fearful for, you know, seeing really place dark places in the heart and mind, and also opening to places of great, um, beautiful, beautiful places, you know, luminous places, experiencing things that I had never experienced before that were kind of beyond pleasant. And so there was this kind of inner rush and this kind of pushing, and it was coming towards, actually, coming towards the end of the retreat, and I was looking at the days and I thought, oh, I don't have any time left, and I, you know, I can't waste any time, make every moment count. And so I went to Manindra, and he saw from my interview where I was at with it all. And what he said to me was, when the fruit is ripe, it will let go of the tree. And that's about all he said. You know, and he, that meant many things to me at many different levels and angles. And one of the things it, that sunk into me deeply is that I just can't hasten or quicken the ripening of the fruit. And the only thing that I could do was be with the present moment as fully as possible. If I leaned too far in the future or hung on and compared to experiences of the past, that that wasn't the way. It said that faith is like a seed. It, is, it establishes itself firmly in this soil. And it has the characteristic of venturing beyond or of aspiring. So that gets pretty tricky. And that's where we need this balance and this gentleness and this sensitivity and subtlety to know the balance. Because when we have this faith and this courage or this energy to go beyond, this aspiration to go beyond, that's when... um, this feeling of leaning forward into the future can come, of thinking that we need to attain anything, of striving can come in. And so this is the place where we need to be very, very sensitive and remind ourselves that the whole of the path has everything to do with letting go, nothing to do with gaining anything or attaining anything and to find that gentle balance that we need to actually be in just this present moment. What does it take for us to do that? There are two levels of faith, or two kinds of faith. The first faith, or confidence, is called bright faith. And it's inspired by another person, by their experience, uh, by the way that they've handled or gone through their spiritual path, and how we see how they've come through it, the qualities that they exhibit in um, their life. Or it might be we're inspired by a sacred place that we've been to, many sacred places, a path, a walking path 
can be a sacred place. Our sitting cushion can be a sacred place. Or by a writing, a book, or a oral teaching from others. Bright faith can come from that, but it's usually dependent on something outside of ourselves. And so that, that bright faith, that faith, that trust, that courage can remain as long as that inspiration is there. But as soon as that inspiration has dimmed or is gone, it, it no longer serves us. But in the beginning, it can serve us in, in a way in which we can use and which can keep us going on the path. Um, my own experience of bright faith, what first was a bright faith um, example to me was um, when I lived in the Philippines. I was born there, and, and uh, I came back to America to live when I was a child, was educated here, and then went back to the Philippines when I was just in my 20s, just turning 20. Well, when I began to live there, there was a lot of suffering there that I had never experienced in my grown years. Um, there were people on the street, lepers and beggars and prostitutes that were very young. And um, it was just an incredible opening. And, and then there was n- not just seeing the suffering outside of, of myself, outside of my heart that touched me, um, that was really so close to me, you know, that, that when you walked in the market, the beggars would just scramble upon you. And um, if you put out your hand at all to give them anything, I used to be told by the family that I lived with not, not to give anything because you could be hurt. And then, so once I tried and actually got my arm and hand all scratched up because they, you know, there's such a desperation there. And so it's so pervasive in in Asian countries like that. So my heart just felt totally ripped apart. And then there was my own suffering of being in a situation where I knew I didn't belong, being in a family um, where I didn't belong and and, uh, feeling that I had to leave. And there was very deep suffering. I was so young, you know, and had three children, one after another, and um, I was ill-placed, and so much suffering. And it's said that one of the things that leads us to faith is actual, actually suffering. And it's because you get to a point where you've got to get out You've got to get out of the mess somehow. And you know that you've hit rock bottom, and the only way out is, you know, not going any further into suffering. When you've got some recognition and wisdom there to know that you've got to get, go into another direction. And so it's said that suffering is actually a condition for faith to arise. And so it was, for me, a condition for faith to arise. And so at that time, I was um, a, a Catholic, a 
very devout Catholic that did the things that Catholic people do, you know, um, <laughs> especially in an Asian country, in a country like the Philippines where the Spanish had occupied the Philippines for 400 years, and so it's over 90% Catholic and deeply devout people where we'd go to Mass every day, you know, and go to novenas. We'd say novenas over and over again. The rosary would be repeated. This, at 6 o'clock, the, bell would, the, the, the uh, church bells would ring and there would be certain prayers said. And I look back in that, on that, actually, and feel deep gratitude for that time because it developed a lot of, um, you know, the repetition developed a lot of concentration and there was a, a lot of perseverance that got developed during that time. And so during that time, there was um, a, uh, an apparition that occurred. An apparition is, uh, I would say, there was a, a, an appearance of something that, you know, a, a being of light that is hard to reconcile as a human being. But in any event, this happened. I was at home, and the household help came home. Um, I, had, uh, I was in a family where I had about six household helpers, and so I was really misplaced. <laughs> um, and they said that there was an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the next town. And so I said, well, let's go and see. And so we went. We went in the car, and most of the family went to see. We parked the car on the street, and we took a long, winding road, uh, walking path. And as I neared the walking path, uh, neared the place on the walking path, I saw above, and this was in daylight, uh, I saw above a glow in the sky, and it was... Um, above some palm trees, but I couldn't make out what the glow was all about. So I went around further and then reached the place where many people had gathered, and then um, I looked up, and there above me was the, an appearance in, of light of a woman dressed in certain robes, and they were colored blue and white, and you could see her face, and you could see her hands, and you could see the tops of her feet, and that was all. And her hands were stretched out to her side and open, and she was moving and looking around. And I, I felt so shocked that I fell on my knees, and I, I knew, then I thought, oh, maybe that's why genuflection came about. <laughs> you know, you just get, whoa. And so... Uh, I looked up, and I wasn't the only one who apparently saw this vision, that there were many others. And this had a great effect on this feeling of the ability to go beyond, the ability to understand or to experience beyond what we experience as human beings. It, it was a rare occasion, and I have never doubted that um, 
there was actually this. I never thought, oh, it was just my imagination. It was actual. And so the, the, this woman, which was the name that they put on her, was the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, but she could be the manifestation of, you know, any feminine being of purity in any um, tradition, really. Quan uh, Yin, any tradition. So she was the essence of purity. And she didn't speak out loud, but the question that she put forth to me that I got in my heart is, what are you doing here? And so she didn't really give me an answer, but she gave me a question. And so that question set me forth on a quest that brought me here. Because the answer to that question has many, many different levels and layers. And in that moment it had, the, the layer it had was, what was I doing in the Philippines? What am I doing here? This is not my place. I was in a layer of society that was superficial and didn't want that and wanted to find deeper meaning in life and it wasn't serving that, that deeper pull that was in my heart. And so it set me on a journey that, was, um, that led me here to this moment. And this, although this um, happened many, many years ago, it's that, that bright faith that was inspired there. Actually, although it's dim, it has still served me all these years. You know, that vision of purity, that ability to know that it can actually exist, to see that refinement that pure light that can be in a being. I asked um, Upandita once, uh, when we were in Hawaii together, because there's this deity in uh, Hawaii um, that represents the fire element there. Gee, all of a sudden, I forget. I visit her all the time. Pele, oh, Madam Pele. Um, we visit her in Haleakala all the time uh, in the volcano areas, you know, where she is said to have her essence, her spirit. And um, I asked Upandita once, do you believe in these deities? Do you believe in de- devas or these deities, beings of light? And he said, yes. And I said, he said, do you believe in them? And I said, yes. And he said, to me, if you believe in them, you should ask them for help sometimes. It was interesting, you know? Uh, some uh, Upandita as kind of, he's so direct and precise and just keeping his mind on the practice, keeping us pointed on the practice. So, so I have. I have asked <laughs> for help. Because it's, it's I, I truly believe in that. So that was the first bright faith that I experienced. And then the second bright faith that I experienced is meeting with my first Dharma teacher, Manindra, because he exemplified um, truths to me that 
I never saw previously in any other human being. This um, kind of intense interest to know, to discover, what am I here for? You know, to answer that question, a kind of deeper faith, an intense interest and investigation to know that more deeply. He really pointed me in the direction to get to a different level of that faith, which is called verified faith. Not bright faith, but verified faith, where we know for ourselves. It's said that bright faith is when we can see others do it, you know, like crossing a river, the river of suffering. But when we have verified faith, we cross that river ourselves, and we see... Yes, not only that person can do it, but I can do it too. And it might happen just in a moment, but we know we can when we can do it even just that one moment. So Manindra's energy and his way of looking deeply into things all the time really pointed me into that direction. He and... um, Upandita, my other teacher, really showed me how I could do that. How could I really be with the present moment in such a way to open me to that verified faith? For this kind of verified faith, we have to really connect with our commitment, our resolution. It said that faith is manifested as resolution, where we can take the energy of our commitment, which is courage, and carry it through. Carrying it through is courage. To be able to see from those small steps, those stilling of the mind and heart, to begin to experience very deeply the fundamental, essential facts of life and then to begin to live in alignment with those, those fundamental facts of seeing deeply the impermanent nature of life, opening to that, not just on a, you know, everyday level, but very deeply, and to the um, unsatisfactory nature of life. Because when we open to that, then we can really let go then we no longer keep trying to attain something, to achieve something. That's why we open to the unsatisfactoriness of life, because it leads us to letting go. It leads us to non-attachment, which both of those intertwine and or open us to the no-separate-self nature of life or the deep interconnectedness of all of life. So it's this um, trust and courage. Sometimes it's talked about, Sharon often talks about this, is um, to placing one's heart upon. That's what faith means in Pali, sadha. Faith, uh, to place one's heart upon. 
to really make the commitment to make a resolution to let ourselves do that, to allow ourselves to do that, to not give up on ourselves. One of the things that um, one of my friends says to me when I come to some despairing time, which really helps me a lot, is a simple, don't give up on yourself. So this placing one's heart upon, making the commitment, following through with our resolution, taking that energy uh, that comes from trust, trusting in the present moment, opening to that, and then carrying that through with a kind of energy where it translates into courage. So I'd like to end with this um, poem by David White. I read one of his poems last time, too. This is about faith. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises one cold, snowy night after night. Faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith in myself. I refuse it the smallest entry. Let this then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. for a moment. May we allow this present moment like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens us to faith. listening to the Dhamma.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.